0: Today's C.S. Lewis Stanley comes from the second half of his famous essay on the weight of glory. Before we begin, I wanted to share from BibleGateway.com the verse of the day um, in, from the Orthodox Jewish Bible, Yaakov 3.13. Who has hochmah and bainah among you, or who has wisdom among you and understanding? Let him show you by his hit nahagot hatovah, It's good conduct. That the massim of Him are of Shiflut of Hokma, that he has humility. Let's read. Here then is the desire still wandering and uncertain of its object, and still largely able to see that object, unable to see that object in the direction where it really lies. Our sacred books give us some account of the object. It is, of course, a symbol symbolical account there again is that british symbolical instead of the symbolic i'm used to it is of course a symbolical account heaven is by definition outside our experience but all intelligible descriptions must be of things within our experience the scripture picture of heaven is therefore just as symbolical as the picture which our desire unaided invents for itself Heaven is not really full of jewelry any more than it is really the beauty of nature or a fine piece of music. The difference is that the scriptural imagery has authority. It comes to us from writers who are closer to God than we and it has stood the test of Christian experience down the centuries. The natural appeal of this authoritative imagery to me, at first, is very small. At first sight it chills rather than awakes my desire, and that is just what I ought to expect. If Christianity could tell me no more of the far off land than my own temperament led me to surmise already, then Christianity would be no higher than myself. If it has more to give me, I expect it to be immediately less attractive than my own stuff. Sophocles at first seems dull and cold to the boy who has only reached Shelley. If our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent, for it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know." The promises of Scripture may very roughly be reduced to five heads. It is promised, one, that we shall be with Christ, two, that we shall be like him, three, with an enormous wealth of imagery that we shall have glory, four, that we shall in some sense be fed or feasted or entertained, and five, that we shall have some sort of official position in the universe, ruling cities, judging angels, being pillars of God's temple. The first question I ask about these promises is, why any one of them except the first? Can anything be added to the conception of being with Christ? For it must be true, as an old writer says, that he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. I think the answer turns again on the nature of symbols, for though it may escape our notice at first glance, yet it is true that any conception of being with Christ, which most of us can now form, will not be very much less symbolical than the other promises for it will smuggle in ideas of proximity and space and loving conversation as we now understand conversation, and it will probably concentrate on the humanity of Christ to the exclusion of his deity. And in fact, we find that those Christians who attend solely to this first promise always do fill it up with very earthly imagery indeed, in fact, with hymeneal or erotic imagery. I am not for a moment condemning such imagery, I hardly wish I could enter into it more deeply than I do, and I pray that yet I shall, but my point is that this also is only a symbol, like the reality in some respects, but unlike it in others, and therefore needs correction from the different symbols and the other promises. The variation of the promises does not mean anything other than God will be our ultimate bliss, but because God is more than a person. Unless we should imagine the joy of his presence too exclusively in terms of our present poor experience of personal love, with all its narrowness and strain and monotony, a dozen changing images, correcting and relieving each other, are supplied. I turn next to the idea of glory. There is no getting away from the fact that this idea is very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms, crowns, white robes, thrones, and splendor like the sun and stars. All this makes no immediate appeal to me at all, and in that respect, I fancy, I am a typical modern. Glory suggests two ideas of me, one of which seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, The desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? When I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton Johnson and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory quite frankly in the sense of fame or good report, but not fame conferred by our fellow creatures. Fame with God, approval, or I might say appreciation by God. And then, when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before his creator." I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions, or how very quickly, in my own experience, the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please, turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment, before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. With no taint of what we shall now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will also drown her pride deeper than Prospero's book. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. It is not for her to bandy compliments with her sovereign. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. But proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon either each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. It is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And now notice what is happening. If I had rejected the authoritative and scriptural image of glory and stuck obstinately to the vain or vague desire, which was at the outset my only pointer to heaven, I could have seen no connection at all between that desire and the Christian promise. But now, having followed up what seems puzzling and repellent in the sacred books, I find to my great surprise looking back that the connection is perfectly clear." Glory, as Christianity teaches me to hope for it, turns out to satisfy my original desire, and indeed to reveal an element in that desire which I had not noticed. By ceasing for a moment to consider my own wants, I have begun to learn better what I really wanted. I love that sentence. (laughs) By ceasing for a moment to consider my own wants, I have begun to learn better what I really wanted. When I attempted a few minutes ago to describe our spiritual longings, I was omitting one of their most curious characteristics. We usually notice it just as the moment of vision dies away, as the music ends, or as the landscape loses its celestial life. What we feel then has been described by Keats as the journey homeward to habitual self. You know what I mean. For a few minutes, we've had the illusion of belonging to that world. Now we wake to find that it is no such thing. We have been mere spectators. Beauty has smiled, but not to welcome us. Her face was turned in our direction, but not to see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed, or taken into the dance. We may go where we please. We may stay if we can. Nobody marks us. A scientist may reply that since most of the things we call beautiful are inanimate, it is not very surprising they take no notice of us. That, of course, is true. It is not the physical objects that I am speaking of, but that indescribable something of which they become for a moment the messengers. And part of the bitterness which mixes with the sweetness of that message is due to the fact that it so seldom seems to be a message intended for us, but rather something we have overheard. By bitterness I mean pain, that resentment. We should hardly dare to ask that any notice be taken of ourselves, but we pine. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes Highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report from God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Perhaps it seems rather crude to describe glory as the fact of being noticed by God, but this is almost the language of the New Testament. St. Paul promises to those who love God not, as we shall expect, that they will know him, but that they will be known by him. 1 Corinthians 8.3 It is a strange promise. Does not God know all things at all times? But it is dreadfully re-echoed in another passage of the New Testament. There we are warned that it may happen to any one of us to appear at last before the face of God and hear only the appalling words, I never knew you, depart from me. In some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere, and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. I will pause there for today, and tomorrow, we will finish the rest of the essay. It is good to contemplate the darker side of things, not with anxiety, but with confidence that, having confessed and joined ourselves to the Mashiach, and pledged him our loyalty as the knights of old might have pledged it to a king, and pledged him our love as a married person, pledges to someone else and of course that it is not that pledge that saves us but his undying love for us in his dying what a beautiful paradox he is hope that you enjoyed today's C.S. Lewis Daily remember that this episode as always is brought to you by Prometheus Studies by Jen Finelli 20 or 30 tiny little meditations on the world around us. You can find it by searching Prometheus Studies, Finding God in Palobolos, Tarantulas, and Mario by Jen Finelli. I wish you the loveliest day. Goodbye.